love him everywhere. Uh, for those people who are listening via podcast, now is about when you'll join us because we'll edit the rest of it out. Um, so it seems like we're semi-professional, which we're not. Uh, we've been talking about prayer, and this is our little uh, prayer icon that we've been using. So this is from um, a Celtic tradition that says um, that when John leaned against Jesus, he heard the heartbeat of God, and uh, that is a symbol for prayer. Amy's abandoned the desk already. Oh, 4T. Okay, we'll allow it. Um, man, falling asleep on your watch so soon. Can you not wait with me? That was a Bible joke. I'm glad someone got that. Excellent. For those of you who uh, don't read the Bible, you're not missing much in that particular instance. Um, so we've been talking about prayer, and as uh, you can tell by this introduction, a lot of the things that happen in this community are quite rambling, including our um, series. And so our series has been going on for a while, and we thought before we started uh, with any sense of authority telling everyone what prayer is all about, we would listen to people about what prayer is about in their lives. And so we spent the first few weeks uh, getting stories from people about how they pray, what issues they have with prayer. It'll surprise you this, but our community has a lot of issues. Yeah, Um, that's a huge shock to us all. Um, A few key issues came out of that, which we kind of um, summarized and discussed. Uh, How difficult prayer is in a world where believing in God seems very silly because um, God is definitely supposed to be dead. Um, How prayer can be difficult when, in light of the atrocities that have happened in history which weren't prevented, Um, If you pray to the kind of God who's supposed to fix everything, um, that can just make God seem incredibly cruel. Um, Prayer, where God's been great, and this is a story of quite a few of us, where God's been great, um, and then at the last minute when we actually need God most, God lets you down in profound and cruel ways, uh, and it's difficult to recover from that. And so we suggested that for quite a lot of us who are stuck in prayer, it comes back to our view of, how, of who God is and how God works in the world. And we developed a series of caricatures of God, um, unhelpful pictures of God that, um, that might feed into this. So if you're interested in um, getting a back catalog of such things, there is a podcast which you can listen to, which is terribly produced but contains some all right content. Um, and also our Facebook page has got some stuff on that as well. So if you are here for the first time or um, have some kind of amnesia and have forgotten everything uh, or just don't come very regularly, you can catch up that way. Um, Part of this process, and this is where Amy gets to shine, um, part of this process has been letting go of unhelpful pictures of God. And go, Amy, go, yes. Um, This is a process that happens. um, Walter Brueggemann, who's an Old Testament scholar, calls this orientation, disorientation, reorientation. Um, And it's based on a pattern in the Psalms where where the psalmists struggle and then have to find a new view and then are reoriented to that view. And our process this is the Richard Raw version of that is um, order, disorder, reorder. And so in um, considering our view of God and how that shapes how we pray, um, a lot of us have been in a place of order where we feel like we know how it's supposed to work. And then through some scenario in life, um, which has caused a rupture in that view, it's caused a huge amount of disorder. And the opportunity we have is either to 
throw it all in the bin, which is definitely an option, or um, to open ourselves to um, new ways of understanding God um, that potentially are more faithful to Jesus, um, which is a process of reorder. So Amy, again, all-powerful pointer. Um, so, this, so this is just kind of one example of this. If, if you... And this will, sorry if you're here um, for the first time. Our series, again, um, go, for, go for quite a long time. So um, this may not make no sense. But if your primary picture of God is God as Zeus, the kind of all-controlling, all-punishing um, one who is in charge of every minutia of the universe kind of God, um, and prayer is a sense of magic and control where if you pray something, then something will definitely happen and... Um, um, and it's all going to work out in the end, then that, that's your kind of first base place. But if that falls apart because prayer becomes empty or the way that you pray doesn't work or God doesn't show up when you need to, you hit this place of disorder where you've got to open yourself to a new possibility. You've either got to um, take the blame on yourself or think that perhaps there's another way of seeing God. Um, which is the place of reorder. God is question mark. And as we've um, discussed during the series, we don't get to choose who God is. Um, that's not for us to do. But we do get to dig deep into Scripture. We do, do get to dig, dig deep into experience. And if there are versions of God that we're carrying around in our head that are unfaithful to that, we we get to choose faithfulness to perhaps a different presentation of God. Um, and the way that we um, st- are starting this process is by looking at um, Jesus as the best version of God that we have. Um, again, this is our Christian tradition. For those of you who aren't Christians here, you've got a lot more options. But for those of us who are followers of Jesus, um, we see Jesus, as, if God is like anything, then God is like Jesus. Jesus told his disciples, um, when you see me, you see the Father. I think a lot, we've discussed this as well, but a lot of Christianity has kind of had this nice Jesus holding back this very, very angry Father figure as if there's some kind of disruption between the two, that um, God the Father is, you know, he's 60s dad with the belt out and he just really wants to punish everyone. But Jesus is kind of like throwing himself in front going, Dad, Dad, don't, don't, Um, I'll take it. And that is a split in the Trinity. And, um, And what Jesus says about himself when you see me, you see the Father, says that there is no split in the Trinity, that um, all of God participates in all of God's activities. And um, the quote you've used from a guy, Trip Fuller, says God has to be at least as nice as Jesus, um, which I think is true. So we're looking through the Lord's Prayer as a lens for how Jesus saw prayer as a starting point for perhaps reorienting our prayer lives. And so if Amy can flick to, well, we're never using a clicker again. This is far more effective. Uh, we're going to read through the Lord's Prayer together. In my Kiwi slash slightly Australian tinged accent rather than Harriet's beautiful, authoritative British one. Stinks of colonialism though, doesn't it? Um, I'm kidding. I'm sorry, Harriet. Uh, Abba God, who is in heaven, blessed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses for those, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so we're spending this next little chunk of the series exploring what we might learn from the Lord's Prayer. Um, in the first four lines, which we looked at at the start, we um, had a fair bit of discussion around this and about what views of God begin to present themselves in the first four lines. Um, does anyone want to chime in here so it's not just me talking? Those of you who were here a few weeks ago. What um, potential or possible pictures of God emerge out of the first four lines? You're leaving it for me on my own? Oh, pick you. Hello, what's your name? I wasn't here a few weeks ago. Um, we could start with the first word, um, and Abba being Aramaic. I'm going with Aramaic. Um, Hebrew for um, daddy. So that very first word is just so extraordinary. Um, no, but it's um, but also that um, apparently Jesus was perhaps the first and only person to to use that kind of four-year-old word for for parent um, in reference to God. So for those of us who grew up with a very strong Zeus mentality for God, that's questioned right there. Any other additions? Why in heaven? Yeah, we discussed that too. Um, And the, the kind of first century Palestinian Jewish view of heaven wasn't not so much a place that exists far away, but a state of being in which everything was as it should be. So we talked about kind of the fall, well, the concept of the fall being not so much a separation as a dislocation, that when we look at the world, it doesn't take long to look around to go, there are things that are that should not be. Something's just not right about this. And the Jewish perspective on that is that there's some kind of dislocation, not a disconnection. It's not like God isn't present here, but that things are not as they are supposed to be. And so the in heaven reference is that, is a statement of hope that one day the world will be as it is, where cruelty and discrimination and death and sorrow and marginalization, that, that, that those things will be outlasted by love and that one day love will bring those two things together. Mm. Absolutely. I think it can definitely manifest itself in that way. Yeah. I think, so the Celt, again, Celtic tradition has this idea of thin places. There are these places where it feels like heaven is closer, um, sacred spaces, um, particular relationships, um, particular modes of being where we are more in touch with what the world would be like in that place. Yeah. Any more additions? Making me work for it. I took notes because I'm a nerd. 
<laughs> and my notes say, Jesus saw pain and suffering every day, intimately knew the pain of the world. God's will is not done always, all the time, but it's still worth praying for, um, which I think was looking at those, your kingdom come, your will be done, that idea that God's will is not done in the pain of the world that we see every day. Yeah, Rod's, um, Rod shared his anti-testimony last week. as <laughs> a great example of that, um, that, God, that God's will is not always done. And again, for, you know, for those of us who have kind of <laughs> suffered under a loved one dying and then someone saying, you know, God picked another flower, um, as if, you know, <laughs> death is just this thing that God's just waiting to strike everyone down or take them for himself at our cost is... Um, really mean, but also really absurd, and what we're beginning to discover is really un-Jesus-y. So, so we've been prodding at how and why God doesn't, doesn't, doesn't answer prayer, and it's revealed some serious questions about how prayer works. But our instinct kind of going forward, as Rod and I have talked about this, is that um, we're not going to get to a satisfactory understanding of prayer until we broaden the scope a little bit. If we become obsessed on the singular question of why doesn't the things we want to happen happen, um, we're not actually going to understand prayer. So we're going to come back to that a little bit later in the series once we've kind of broadened our scope a little. So we're pressing pause for a moment on that and adopting a wider lens and seeing if we're able to get our heads around what Jesus meant by prayer. Um, So today we're introducing two complementary frameworks or initial postures for prayer. And here it is, Amy. Um, The two words we're using are participation and formation. And so today, very briefly, I'm going to sketch a little bit of an outline, and it's not going to be very satisfactory. Um, That's a really good disclaimer, just so I don't have to do a very good job. Uh, And we'll be fleshing it out over the weeks to come. So beginning with participation, participation includes us asking God to do stuff but also incorporates the idea that God invites us to do this in the first place. Participation is about mutual invitation. The idea that God is involved in the world and so are we, and the possibility that we're actually involved in the world together, that somehow these two things are joined. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the idea of participation is relational, not mechanistic. We, the Bible at every turn resists magic. Um, if you look at magic as being particular incantations or formulas that you say, and then the spiritual world is obliged to do something to make a difference. Um, that's a mechanistic view of prayer where we are essentially in control. The Bible resists this consistently and proposes that all prayer is relational, that we can't turn God into an object to be controlled, and we can't turn the spiritual realm into an object to be controlled, but that everything is somehow a part of a relationship. Oh, Rod, excellent interjection time. This is a footnote. Um, I just, um, for for those that have been around for a while, I'm reading the Bible this year, Um, and uh, in... In Acts, I've just finished reading Acts, and there's this great story where Paul is healing people and some magicians in this town go, wow, this guy's got some power, and he's kind of 
putting it into handkerchiefs and that, that seems to work really well. So they, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure the state of the handkerchiefs. But um, so they get their own handkerchiefs. I think they maybe, maybe they touch them on Paul or something like that. And then they go off and they try to cast out a demon from this guy. And uh, the demon says to, to them, it's such a great illustration of the, the relationship thing. The demon says to them, Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. I don't know you. And proceeds to beat them all up. <laughs> I think this is fantastic. A fantastic illustration of magic and relationship. That it's it's not about the power, but it's about relationship. It's about being known. You know, um, yeah, great story. If I say so myself, great story. Ten out of ten. Um, yeah. So, however we approach prayer, and I guess this is the clincher that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, is that we let go of the possibility of control. We never get to pray in a way where we guarantee results. That God is not a God of certainty. That God is a God of mystery and relationship. And that's a very, it's a very difficult thing to give up if you are used to a God of control. Of course, there are benefits to that, and that God wasn't in control of Auschwitz. So, you know, swings and roundabouts. Um, Whatever prayer is, is relational, whatever we hope to ha- happen from it, it will become about because of love, not because of coercion. Participation goes beyond us just asking. God invites us to shape the world, and we invite God to do the same. Paul suggests in, um, in Romans that the Spirit prays through us, um, that the Spirit prays through us to God, which just makes us seem a bit like Kermit the Frog or some kind of Muppet <laughs> where, <laughs> but again, the difference between that and puppetry is that we have a choice in this. So there's this cyclical sense to the participation model of prayer and that God is wanting to bring healing and goodness and hope and restoration to the world and that somehow he has given us a role and a function in doing so. And then we, invite God into the world to bring about healing and restoration and hope. And if you've um, been around for any discussion of the Trinity, you may remember this idea that God in God's self is a relationship. God is not a sing- God is a singular being, but God is also a relationship. That um, this beautiful Russian Orthodox icon um, of God is God um, because God makes space for the other. So there's this um, Russian icon of three empty stools with the three persons of God moving between them, like a game of musical chairs, but there's enough chairs. Um, But the idea that love is defined by giving space over to another. And the view is that that runs down all throughout the fabric of the universe, that Love and the ultimate reality is giving space over to another. So there's this kind of like participatory center to the way that the universe functions. And so through that view, God wants to do things in the world and inspires us us to ask for God to be involved in the world. And somehow through that cycle of relationship, new possibilities are opened up. But as we all know, we can also refuse hope and love 
and kindness and goodness and dignity and equality. We're going to all become agents of death and hatred and bigotry and all kinds of things. So this is kind of what God, one of the things that God has given over in creating creation is that he's given us the very real ability to close him out of the created order, which is risky business because I don't know if I'd trust us. But the beautiful thing is, is that if we choose to participate somehow, and again, we can't bring it down to a maths, maths formula, but somehow our prayer opens space for God to be involved in the world. We'll leave that there for now because you're all looking just confused enough for me to think that I sound really smart. Um, The second side of things is prayer is formation. So prayer is a shaping force. So in this prayer, if we go back, Amy, or forward, I'm not sure. Yeah, great. Around, Trinitarian style. Um. If we look at the second half of this prayer, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we um, forgive those who trespass against us. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Um, Jesus riffs on this later to say, unless you forgive your brother, you won't be forgiven. And again, it's this participatory understanding of the universe that we invite God to function in the world in particular ways, and God is always trying to do so. But God, in turn, invites us to operate in the world in particular ways. There is something required for us in this. This prayer has the opportunity to shape us. We all instinctively long for grace, for mercy, for forgiveness when we've messed up. But the desire to reciprocate this doesn't necessarily come naturally. The will to forgive someone who's hurt you or to pray for or even love your enemy is an act of formation. So this prayer begins to shape what James K. Smith would say begins to shape our desires or shape what we love. Um, This idea that The most important thing, the most important thing in the world for a human is what we love. And out of what we love, we act. But we choose what we love. And we engage in rituals that shape what we love. If we spend all day on our phones, on eBay, looking at things to buy, and that's all we do with our time, our whole world will narrow down to the dopamine hit of purchasing something from eBay. If, however, we spend time around people who are in need or even recognizing our own need, our loves will slowly be shaped around something different. So formation is the idea that prayer profoundly shapes what we love and what we love outworks itself in how we live. Prayer shapes us into kingdom creatures. It invites us into the life of God where we slowly learn how to live in such a way that life and beauty, rivers of living water flow out of us. For those of us who need to shed ourselves of Zeus, the all-powerful, all-controlling, all-punishing God, 
It's easy to think that if we could just get rid of him, we could get on with our lives, quit stressing about what he thinks of our time under the covers, and finally be happy. And there's some truth in that. But there's more to prayer and there's more to spirituality than simply the rules of what you are and are not allowed to do. Being free from the rules doesn't necessarily make you a free creature. Um, This terribly titled, horribly covered book, um, but quite brilliant um, book by a guy called Francis Spufford, who's a novelist and nonfiction author who also happens to be a Christian, and wrote one of my favorite Oh, this, this is one of the books that resonates with me the most about why, despite everything, I choose to be a Jesus follower, even though that definitely makes me less smart than everybody else in the world. Um, the book's called Unapologetic, um, Why Despite Everything, Christianity Can Still Make Surprising Emotional Sense. Um, Francis Spufford, Spufford touches on this idea of that being free from the Zeus God um, doesn't complete your life. It's an important step, but there's further to go. And um, for those of you who are our friendly atheists here, I'm sorry because he has a dig at a really, really crappy form of atheism. Um, And it's, you know, we're okay with that because it's a really bad version and definitely not the best of what atheism has to bring. So um, (laughs) you'll have to live with us or throw shoes. So he's discussing um, this bus slogan uh, that went around um, the, this um, particular Dawkins-esque um, atheist group in London made a whole lot of bus signs um, to you know let, let everyone know what they thought, which they're quite entitled to. Um, one of them, and somehow I deleted it out of that page of notes, I'm going to have to find it in the book. Please amuse yourselves. But not too much. Oh, here we go. So the buses that went around London said this. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Which, at first, I remember hearing this years ago and realizing now that it's when I held a very Zeusy form of God and went, oh my gosh, what if, what, if that's, what if that's true? Wouldn't that be nice if you could just get God off your back like that? But of course you can't. Um, Spafford's pushback on this focuses on one singular word, and it's not probably, because he agrees. He's like, I can't... There, There probably isn't a God, or there probably is. None of us can argue with any um, concrete logic either way. We just have a series of suspicions that we make sound really intellectual. Um, My issue is not with the word probably. My issue is with the word enjoy. And he argues that the word enjoy is is a concept borrowed from marketing, that what marketing does is says, see these happy people who have this dire problem. Infomercials are great at this. Um, watch um, infomercial fails, if you can, of um, the people who get to act like, you know, um, 
trying to use an object that doesn't work, like trying to like pick up something slippery when they could have this amazing glove that helps them pick it up and they kind of pick it up and bumble it everywhere and spill it and break the things. Um, it's, there's some great YouTube highlights reels there. Um, but the idea of marketing is essentially to create one singular problem is that is the thing that makes you unhappy and then create a product that will fix that problem and then by the end of the ad, you've got these like really happy people because that like, you know, that before they couldn't p- pick up the hot pan, but now they have the special magic glove. All of the problems of life have gone away and we could be happy like them. So his issue is with the word enjoy because in his view, enjoy isn't the default state in life. That getting rid of the God that is constantly hounding us and making us feel bad doesn't necessarily bring us to a place of pure enjoyment. That for most of us, life has got this huge um, mix of emotions and experience and pure enjoyment happens from time to time but doesn't make up the bulk of our existence. So, back to where I was. He's talking about ads here. You'd think, oh, I have to, um, I have to um, edit along the way as I go because it's a particularly sweary book, which I really enjoy, but some of the children might enjoy too much. So I'll do my best and try not to bleep out the wrong words. Um, <laughs> you'd think, if you based your knowledge of the human species exclusively on adverts, that the normal condition of humanity was to be a good-looking single between 20 and 35, with excellent muscle definition and or an excellent figure and a large disposable income. Clearly, there are exceptions to this, such as lovey-dovey silver um, silver ages who consume Viagra and go on cruises and the wise-cracking moppets who promote breakfast cereal. But the center of the gravity of the human race, our default condition, is to be young, buff, and available. And you'd think the same thing if you got your information exclusively from the atheist bus, Again, flimsy version of atheism. Um, I apologize. With a minor difference that in this case, the man from the gold blend couple has a tiny wrinkle of concern on his handsome forehead forehead, caused by the troublesome thought of God's possible existence, a wrinkle about to be removed by one one magic application of reason. Trademark. These plastic beings don't need anything that they can't get by shopping. But suppose as the atheist bus goes by, You are the 50-something-year-old woman with the Tesco bags, trudging home to find out whether your dementing lover has smeared the walls of her flat with feces again. Yesterday, when she did it, you hit her, and she mewled to her face with a mess of tears and mucus, which you had to clean up. The only thing that would ease the weight on your heart would be to tell the funniest, sharpest-tongued person you know about it. But that person no longer inhabits the creature who will meet you at the door when you unlock it. Respite care would help, but nothing will restore your sweetheart, your true love, your Joe. Or suppose that you're the boy in the wheelchair, the one with the spasming corkscrew limbs and the funny-looking head. You've never been able to talk, but one of your hands has been enough under your control to tap out messages. Now the electrical storm in your nervous system is spreading there too, and your fingers tap more errors than readable words. Soon, your narrow channel to the world will close altogether and you'll be left all alone in the hulk of your body. Research into the genetics of your disease may abolish it altogether in later generations, but it won't rescue you. 
Or suppose that you're that skanky-looking woman in the doorway, the one with a rat's nest of dreadlocks. Two days ago, you skedaddled from rehab. The first couple of hits were great. Your tolerance had gone right down. And over two weeks of abstinence and square meals, um, the rush of bliss was the way it used to be when you began. But now you're back in the grind, and the news is trickling through to you that you've stuffed up big time. Always before you've had the story you tell yourself about getting clean. But now you know it isn't true. Now you know you haven't the strength. Social services will keep your little boy. And in about half an hour, you'll be giving someone a favor for a fiver behind a bus station. Better drugs policy might help, but it won't erase the need and the shame over the need and the need to wipe away the shame. So when the bus comes by and tells you that there's probably no God, so you should stop worrying and enjoy your life, the slogan is not just bitterly inappropriate in mood. What it means, if it's true, is that anyone who isn't enjoying themselves is entirely on their own. That the three of you, for instance, you're all locked in your unshareable situations, banged up for good in cells no other human being can enter. What the bus says is this, there's no help coming. Now don't get me wrong, I don't think there's any help coming in one large and important sense of the term. I don't believe that anything is going to happen which will material alter, materially alter the position of these three people that they find themselves in. But let's be clear about the emotional logic of the bus's message. It amounts to denial of hope or consolation on any but the most chirpy, squeaky, bubblegummy reading of the human situation. St. Augustine called this kind of thing cruel optimism 1,500 years ago, and it's still cruel. Richard Raw talks in his book, The Two Halves of Life, Falling Upward, this idea about um, the Western progression model of the universe um, and the much older tragic view of the universe. The tragic view of the universe says that life is arbitrary, amazing and horrible things happen and we need to prepare ourselves for both of them. The Western progression model says that everything gets better and better and technology will solve it all and life is a constant upward journey. And if you happen to be one of those unlucky people whose lives don't um, play out like that, it's probably your fault (laughs) and unlucky for you. Ancient spirituality like this definitely follows a tragic view of the universe, which says we need to be prepared for lives of depth and meaning. We need to be prepared that loss comes, that take away the God as judge, and we're suddenly not problem-free because we're missing something else. The Jesus prayer would suggest that something needs that we need something to prepare us to live in a world which includes loss and pain and acknowledge that at least some part of the loss and pain can be our doing and that at least some part of the healing of that loss and pain can in fact come through us loving the world in a particular and costly way. Prayers like this are prayers that shape us. They shape us to orient ourselves around a life of love, around a life of costly love, to open ourselves to have a higher view of life than just to enjoy it. 
but actually to be agents of hope, to be agents of forgiveness, to be people that can experience that rare miracle of loving our enemies. That letting go of Zeus doesn't just free us to go and live a life of vacuousness, but potentially letting go of Zeus and adopting Abba God gives us the opportunity to live a life of depth and of meaning and of joy and of solidarity and of kindness. And the formation view of prayer says that prayers like this continue to shape us around a way of being which somehow relates to the God that sits behind all being. That if God, in God's self, as we saw in Jesus, is self-sacrificial love, if God is a God that brings peace and healing, if God is a God of compassion and kindness, then prayer isn't just about that God answering prayers, but about that God shaping us in a particular way that we might be agents of that healing as well. So, that's heaps of talking (laughs) for this morning. As I said, this is just a little skeleton um, that we'll be fleshing out over the next little while. So, if it left you unsatisfied, that's my specialty. Uh, We're going to gather around communion this morning. And I just want to, before we do, say well done to the kids here. We only have kids stuff every second week. And the three kids here did such an amazing job um, of colouring and being awesome. So we're going to give them a little clap because they're well done. That's um, a far higher bar than I could ever reach at that age. Um, So the way we do communion here is... um, we have an all-invited version of communion. Um, we have small elemental symbols here um, of crackers and, and grape juice, and it is symbolic of the common meal, of us being human together, um, of us gathering around Jesus together, a table to which all are invited. Um, you are more than welcome to not participate in communion, or um, if you don't want to stand out, but you also don't want to participate in communion, you're also more than welcome to just drink some grape juice and eat a cracker and pretend um, that's okay too. <laughs> we're not here to shame anyone. Um, so we're going to gather together around the communion table, grab um, the juice and cracker and then eat and drink together. So,